In John D. Mitchell's book, Lost Mines and Buried Treasures Along the Old Frontier, he tells the story of a Spaniard named Don Joaquin Campos from Guadalajara, Mexico, who led a, a mining expedition in the mountains of Arizona in 1840. Uh, one day, a man rode on horseback unexpectedly into Don Joaquin's camp, telling him that the U.S. Army was on its way to kind of possess the mines in which his, his uh, team was working. And as the story goes in the book, uh, Don Joaquin quickly loaded up all of his, all of his burros with, with 1,500 pounds of gold bars and nuggets, and he headed out of the mountains. But the load was, was just too heavy to move quickly, uh, and so worrying that the army was going to possess the gold, he ended up burying it in the back of a cave, thinking he would come back someday to retrieve it. According to the story, whether it's true or not, the gold is still buried in that cave somewhere in the Sierra Estrella Mountains, just to our south. Now, friends, I'm no gold expert, but I do have Google. And I looked up what 1,500 pounds of gold is worth today. And if my findings are accurate, that amounts to $39,445,200. So I ask, can someone please go find that lost treasure, right? So you can have a building and be okay. Here's a question. If you knew exactly where Don Joaquin's treasure is hidden, what would you do? If you were out hiking one Saturday afternoon in the Estrellas and you stumbled upon the cave with the treasure, you found it, what would your response be? I imagine you'd do everything you could to obtain the gold. You'd keep it on the DL, right, long enough uh, to make the necessary uh, investment to s secure the treasure. You'd hire who you need to, to to lift the treasure out and transport it to the nearest high security bank. You know, if such an enterprise cost you a couple hundred thousand bucks, you'd sell what you needed to sell to hire the equipment and, and transport team to get the gold out. Such a discovery, would it would consume your passion and your ambition and in your desire because of that treasure's value. Friends, this is Jesus' essential message to us about the kingdom of God in Matthew 13, 44 to 52. The kingdom is supremely valuable. Therefore, there's no sacrifice too costly to gain it. Please do turn in your Bibles this morning to Matthew 13. Matthew 13, our, our text this morning starts in verse 44. That's on page 819 of the Bible underneath your seats. And this morning we continue our study in Matthew 13 about Jesus' parables of the kingdom of heaven. As we discussed last week, in these parables, Jesus, what he's doing is that he's reframing people's expectations about what the kingdom of God is and how it's manifest in this world. Friends, Jesus did not teach about the kingdom of heaven because it was like new material. This was not a new idea to the Jewish people. No, they expected the Messiah to come at the end of the age and to reign in an apocalyptic global power. They expected this king to exercise God's reign over every rival nation, over every rival enemy, to bring about the restoration of all things. Here's what shocked their system. Jesus is teaching that the kingdom wasn't just a future reality, but that it had come now through 
Him. Jesus says, essentially, God's redemptive reign is present in me and in what I'm doing so that you ought to turn to, to God by believing in and following me. And of course, only someone on par with God himself could make such a claim. Jesus was not only the messianic son of man, the great human king, he was the son of God incarnate. Here's what Jesus taught in the parables. The fact that the kingdom has already come, but not yet fully present, meant that God's kingdom would look shockingly hidden and small in this age. Its appearance would not be grand. It would not be like a wide-scale demonstration of military might. Instead, the presence of the kingdom in the world would be more like the tiniest mustard seed that over time grows and grows and grows until it is shown to be massively large and significant at the end of the age. Or like the, the smallest amount of leaven placed in a large amount of flour which causes the yeast to rise with, with bread enough to feed a banquet. God's redemptive reign through Christ will look hidden and small so long as it coexists alongside the kingdom of man, a la the parable of the weeds. Many will reject the reign of Christ, a la the parable of the sower. But in the end, God will have the last word and many will persevere and all things will be revealed as they truly are. That's the summary of the, the first four parables we looked at last week. Now as we turn to these last four parables in Matthew 13, we still see this theme of hiddenness that you'll notice as we read the text. Treasure is buried. A pearl is obscure. The net draws in good and bad fish together. The new and old treasures are, are hidden in the storehouse of the master. But Jesus here in this section of the parables wants to emphasize another massively important truth. It's the reality of the kingdom's worth. It's surpassing value. He shows us how we should respond in light of God's reign through him. Let's read together Matthew 13, starting in verse 44. The kingdom of heaven is like treasure hidden in a field, which a man found and covered up. Then in his joy... He goes and sells all that he has and buys that field. Again, the kingdom of heaven is like a merchant in search of fine pearls, who on finding one pearl of great value went and sold all that he had and bought it. Again, the kingdom of heaven is like a net that was thrown into the sea and gathered fish of every kind. When it was full, men drew it ashore and sat down and sorted the good into containers, but threw away the bad. So it will be at the end of the age. The angels will come out and separate the evil from the righteous and throw them into the fiery furnace. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Have you understood all these things? They said to him, yes. And he said to them, Therefore, every scribe who has been trained for the kingdom of heaven is like a master of a house who brings out of his treasure what is new and what is old. This is the word of the Lord. Friends, I think the main idea of Matthew 13, 44 to 52, which I pray will be the main idea of this sermon, if I'm doing this work of expositional preaching right, it will be. Here's the main idea. If you truly understand the inestimable, inestimable say that five times fast, if you truly understand the inestimable value of the kingdom, you'll be willing to give up everything to obtain it. 
and you'll share its treasures with others. If you truly understand the surpassing and estimable value, the worth of the kingdom of God, friend, you'll be willing to give up whatever it takes. You'll be willing to give up everything to obtain it, and you'll share its treasures with others. Three points this morning, mirroring these parables. Number one, in the first two parables, the surpassing worth of the kingdom. See that in verses 44 to 46. Number two, the delayed certainties of the kingdom. There in verses 47 to 50. And finally, number three, your privileged role within the kingdom. Verses 51 to 52. Beloved, I pray today that your appraisal of God's kingdom reign would be what Jesus reveals it to be. More valuable than anything this world has to offer. That you would treasure Christ supremely and then faithfully share him so that others might do the same. Let's look at this first point, the surpassing worth of the kingdom. The message of both parables in verses 44 to 46 really communicate the same truth. Even though the kingdom is nearly invisible, it is incomparably precious. It is a treasure hidden in a field or like a pearl of great price. Now, clearly, we're not talking about the junk treasure that my man with the metal detector finds as he combs the beach. You know that guy? Every beach has that guy, metal detector guy. Like, what is he doing? That's very weird, okay? If that's you, please, please, don't be offended. Just stop. Um, no, we're talking about a treasure of staggering value. So much that the man was willing to sell all that he owned to obtain the field so that he could own the treasure legitimately. Likewise, we're not talking about some sort of cheap knockoff costume jewelry in the parable of the pearl. We're talking about a, a pearl so pure, so rare, so large that the merchant was willing to discard all his other pearls, leverage all his, his earthly possessions so that he could have that one pearl. Jesus is saying even though the kingdom isn't apparent on first glance, nor is its value grasped by all, its worth surpasses all competitors. It's like a hidden treasure or an obscure pearl. God's redemptive reign through Christ has incomparable value. And those who make that discovery will gladly give up everything to have it. Even though these parables have the same message, there's one difference between the two analogies. Did you, did you notice what that difference is? Look at the text. What's the difference between the two parables and the images there? If you know, you can shout it out. Anybody got it? See it? The difference is that in the parable of the hidden treasure, the man stumbles upon it accidentally, right? It surprises him. It catches him off guard. However, in the parable of the pearl, the merchant is intentionally looking for fine pearls. He's scouring intentionally the marketplace and the vendors and the oyster divers to find the best pearls, the pearls of the greatest value. Friends, I think the, the difference there is intentional by the Lord Jesus. Jesus is showing us that there are different ways of coming about the treasure of the kingdom of God. You know, so many people in this world think that that true religion is about us doing stuff. And then God responding to what we do. But friends, that's just not how God operates. He's not your heavenly vending machine that dispenses good to you because you've inserted the appropriate amount of seeking or searching or good works doing. 
No, Jesus is telling us that you don't even have to be looking for God for God to reveal himself to you by grace. What mercy is that? On the other hand, there is a type of sinner who does seem to be looking, searching, seeking. And although he, he could never get to God merely by his own diligence, God is sometimes pleased to reveal the treasure of his kingdom to that type of person too. It's all of grace. It's all of God. I think sometimes people get tripped up by the image of buying in the parables. Friends, rest assured, Jesus is not saying that you can buy your way into the kingdom. That would fly in the face of all the rest of the scripture about the gracious nature of the gospel. The salvation is a gift of God by grace through faith, not something we earn or buy or achieve by our wealth, by our intellect, by our status, our works. It's his to give. It's ours to receive by faith. Jesus said in Luke 12, 32, it is your father's pleasure to give you the kingdom. What a truth. God's redemptive reign over his people is a gift of his mercy, not a trophy of our performance. So don't get tripped up about the buying. Jesus' primary point in the image here is the, is the surpassing value of the kingdom of heaven. It's worth more than anything else in the world. And a secondary point in these parables is equally important. There's a condition attached to having the kingdom. There's an attitude you must have if you want to enter it. You must prize it more than anything else. You must treasure God's kingdom as it truly is. Friends, Jesus is testing our hearts. Do you value the kingdom of heaven like the farmer and the merchant who liquidate all they own to get the kingdom, to get the treasure? Or is there something that you refuse to release in order to follow Christ? Is God's reign through Christ like a treasure to you? You know, I think these, these parables in many ways are like the inverse of Jesus' encounter with the rich young man. Remember, that's later in Matthew. We'll get to it sometime next year, next fall, I think. He came to Jesus. He asked what he had to do to receive eternal life. He wanted to inherit the kingdom. And what did Jesus tell him? By the way, if you're new, we're going through Matthew every fall. That doesn't mean we're going to be all that time in Matthew, okay? We'll come to something different in the, in the winter. Just want to be clear there. What did Jesus tell the rich young man? Sell what you possess and give to the poor and you will have treasure in heaven and come follow me. When the young man heard this, he went away sorrowful for he had great possessions. Again, is Jesus preaching work salvation? No, no, he's saying that real, authentic faith in Christ wants him, wants Jesus more than anything else. It's faith that unattaches the cords of your heart from any lesser things in order to bind them to Christ. He is worthy. He's the king at the center of the kingdom. He's the treasure beyond all comparison. He's the pearl of great price. This was the testimony of the Apostle Paul we read earlier, that Dustin read in, in Philippians 3. Paul's words are an echo of Jesus' parables. Paul wrote, But whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth. There it is. The surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For his sake I have suffered the loss of all things, and I count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, that is through keeping the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, 
the righteousness from God that depends on faith. In other words, friends, Paul had run the appraisal. He had run it. He stacked up all his pedigree, all his training, all his works to try to attain righteousness through the law, and it was an impressive stack. But next to the worth of knowing Christ Jesus, that impressive stack looked more like a smoking pile of manure. It's rubbish. Counting everything as lost to know Christ and be found in him was a happy trade-off, wasn't it? Being willing to forsake all to follow Christ, it may kind of seem like a sacrifice at first glance, but it's not really a sacrifice of what you gain is far, far better. In the case of the man who found the treasure in the parable, you know, I'm sure his family and friends must have thought, what is he doing? Like, what, what madness is this? You're selling your house and your furniture and your donkeys and your wagon and your jewelry to do, to do what again? To buy a field? This is deeply irresponsible. This is, this is lunacy. But friends, the, the man's investment in the field, the merchant's investment in the, in the pearl, they were not risky investments. This was not a Bernie Madoff special, right? This was not a Ponzi scheme, spiritual style. They saw the situation accurately. The treasure was worth far more than their possessions. What they would lose in selling, they would more than gain in buying. In other words, we can joyfully lose everything if we gain Christ Jesus. It's the happiest trade-off in the world. Friends, this parable has a way of just utterly disintegrating nominal Christianity. Christianity in name only. Being a follower of Christ is, isn't primarily about a system of, of morality or about even just kind of intellectually assenting to that Jesus was a real person or that God is real. No, Christianity is about wanting God to reign over you like the man wanted the treasure and like the merchant wanted the pearl. It's about submitting to God through Christ and treasuring him above all else. Christianity is not fire, fire insurance. We're going to talk about hell and judgment here in a few moments. It's not about get out of hell free. It's about submitting your heart to God on his terms because you want him more than anything else. The terms he lays out are simply that you must come to him by faith in his son. You know, brothers and sisters, it's so tempting, isn't it? And I, and I feel this. It's so tempting when you see the glitziness and the alluring pleasures of, of this world to have a little bit of FOMO. You know what FOMO is? What's FOMO? Fear of missing out, right? Right? I know it is. I feel this in my heart. Is this Christianity thing all that it's stacked up to be? Like, did I make the right decision to give up the, the esteem of the world to follow Christ? Did I make the right call to renounce my pursuit of sexual freedom in order to have Christ? Is it really worth it to make Christ the center of my life when I could have so much more this world has to offer if I make my career the center of my life? that I make the right call. Beloved, hear the thundering answer of Jesus through these parables. The kingdom of God is worth every bit of loss because of what you gain. Christianity is not a religion based on loss 
or sacrifice, but of surpassing gain, of joy and life and goodness. In this life in part and in the life to come in full. Even now, friend, you have peace with God and sins forgiven and the joy of knowing Him, but the greatest payoff is yet to be revealed. When Christ returns and Judgment Day arrives, the glitz and glamour, the pomp and pleasure of the world will turn to dust in the scales of eternity. All things in the worldly gain column, friend, will be shifted into, into the eternal loss column. If you're an accountant, you're, this makes sense to you, right? Steve can tell you more about it later, right? All things in the worldly gain column will be shifted into the eternal loss column. And all things in the loss column for the sake of Christ will be shifted into the column of eternal gain. Friends, don't look back. Jesus says you got it right. It will be worth it all when we see him. If you've been a Christian for any amount of time, you know that this, this principle of, of singular devotion to Christ, it's not just a prerequisite to come to him for the first time. It's not just a prerequisite for salvation, to come to him by faith. But really throughout our entire lives, we're faced with point of decision after point of decision that demonstrates whether or not we value the kingdom of God above all. Every day, friends, we're faced with moments that, that test whether we will submit our hearts to God's reign over us or whether we'll try to wrest the scepter out of his hands to rule over our lives. Beloved, when you're faced with that next big moment that tests your heart's allegiance to Christ, how will you respond? When you know that your promotion at work hinges on whether or not you celebrate and promote the sexual ideologies, ideologies of this age, how will you respond? What will you do? When gratifying your lust is just a, quick, a click away, what choice will you make? When given the clear opportunity to share the good news of Jesus arises right in front of you, but you know that you may lose face with your friend, how will you respond? When Christ's likeness requires you to be merciful, but you really just want to bring the hammer down, what will you do? When Jesus the King calls you to give up your comfort for the sake of the gospel's advance, how will you react? Friends, I know what you'll want to do naturally, because it's what I want to do naturally. You want to do what's easiest, or most convenient, or most gratifying to your flesh, unless deep down in your soul you remember the surpassing value of the kingdom of God. Friends, let the words of Christ ring in your ears and echo in your souls. The kingdom of God is far more valuable than your money or your comforts or your possessions or your sin. Like the sun outshines the moon, friends. So Christ outshines them all. Friends, you need to be convinced of this now or else when the moment of crisis comes, when the, when the temptation arises in your heart, you won't be ready. You won't be ready. Here's how sanctification works. What you set the eyes of your heart on, what you gaze at, as it were, what you admire is what your heart will crave. You don't grow an affection for the kingdom of God by staring at lesser things. If your vision is captivated by the lesser things, you'll desire those things. That's why we're saying, be thou my vision. Consume my vision, Lord. Let me, let me stare at you. 
So my heart is rich as I heed not. High King of heaven, thy victory won. That is my, the, the heartbeat, the pulse of my life. Friends, you grow in affection and love for the kingdom of God by gazing at him through his word. By storing up the words of Christ in your heart and praying that the spirit makes them come alive in you. I think what's implied in these parables is that obtaining the treasure became the all-consuming passion of the man and the merchant, right? Getting the treasure was the ambition of their lives. It captivated their imagination and their pursuits. Brothers and sisters, how captured are you by the kingdom of God and its work? How much do you think about it, right? Uh, How much are you willing to pay for it? I'm not talking about in giving primarily, although that is loaf, hanging fruit here, right? We've been talking about it. But I mean, all the resources of your life, time, talent, treasure, how central is the kingdom of God to your calendar, to your family habits, to your instincts and decision-making? Friends, I've told you so many times, the, the way the kingdom of God is made visible in this world is through the local church. That will become exceedingly clear when we get to Matthew 16 and Matthew 18. In a real sense, to ask how captured you are by the kingdom of God and its work is to ask how captured you are by the work and mission and ministry of the local church. How intent are you to see God's reign seen and known and prized and worshipped among this family of believers and through this family of believers to the lost? How much do you work to see the culture of the kingdom take root in this local body and our love for one another? How much do you think about how might you employ your gifts and your time and money to make this embassy of Christ's kingdom effective for decades to come in its mission? Beloved, what these parables do is they really require us to assess what we love, to assess our habits, to assess our schedules, to assess everything. Friends, I hope you know by now, especially in light of what we talked about earlier, I hope you know by now that we as elders are committed to not expecting more of you, our church, more of us together. We're, not, we're committed not to expecting more of us than the Bible expects. But friends, we are very committed to equipping our church to carry out all that the Bible expects of us as kingdom-minded Christians. So, friends, when you hear Steve, Bo, and I uh, explain the Bible's priorities for the local church, I hope you'll seriously ask yourself, are these my priorities? Like, seriously. Whether it's about discipleship or corporate prayer or evangelism or giving or whatever. The kingdom of God is disruptive, isn't it? (laughs) The kingdom of God, God's reign through Christ is disruptive by nature. To submit to God's reign is to reshape everything in your life to be in line with his priorities. So friends, do you value the kingdom of God above all? Is it right at the center of who you are? Or is it somewhere kind of off in the margins? Friends, let the parables of the, the treasure and the pearl guide you into faithfulness. Run the appraisal, run that kingdom appraisal, and then order your life accordingly. Number two, the delayed certainties of the kingdom. Look again at verse 47. 
Again, the kingdom of heaven is like a net that was thrown down in the sea and gathered fish of every kind. When it was full, men drew it ashore and sat down and sorted the good into containers, but threw away the bad. So it will be at the end of the age. The angels will come out and separate the evil from the righteous and throw them into the fiery furnace. In that place, there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. When Jesus gave this parable, he was speaking the disciples' language, wasn't he? Many of them were fishermen. Jesus had called to be fishers of, of men. So they knew. They got it. They remembered the, the sweaty and slimy work of sorting the good fish from the bad fish right after the catch. Whether it was, you know, fish that had died or, or fish that were ceremonially unclean according to the Mosaic law that they couldn't use. They threw away the bad. They put the good into containers to be sold in the markets. This made sense to them. Now again, friends, I, I think the expectation of God's final judgment at the end of the age, this was not new to the disciples. It was not new to the Jews. This is exactly what they expected when the kingdom arrived. What was utterly confusing to them, was frankly off-putting, was that Jesus came proclaiming the kingdom had come, but judgment was absent. Where's God's judgment? In this parable of the net, similar to the parable of the weeds, Jesus is resetting expectations about the nature of Christ's kingdom. Jesus is saying that God's kingdom does indeed entail final judgment. It, judgment is coming for the wicked. Those who remain unmoved by God's kingdom reign will face a reckoning for their unbelief and their hardness of heart, but it won't come during Jesus' first coming or in the interval in between his comings. It will come at his second coming. The clear message of this parable is this. Just because the reality of judgment is delayed doesn't mean that it's untrue. Both the parable of the weeds and the net forecast the day of that divine separation. There's a day coming when the not yet of the kingdom, friends, will become the already. The kingdom will come in fullness. The books will be opened and our God will judge. Here's what we confess in our church's statement of faith. We believe that death is not the end. Though the bodies of men after death return to dust, their spirits live on. The righteous departing immediately to be with the Lord and the wicked to be reserved under darkness to the judgment. We believe that the end of the world is approaching. On the last day, Christ will descend from heaven and raise the dead, both righteous and wicked, from the grave to final retribution. A solemn separation will then take place that will forever fix the final state of men in heaven or hell. The wicked being judged to everlasting conscious punishment and the righteous to everlasting life and joy. Of course, the righteous there, not being those who are righteous on their own, but those who are righteous through faith in Christ. Have His righteousness applied to them through faith and justification. Beloved, it's so easy, isn't it, to carry on with our days and forget that the most important realities of this world are unseen. Perhaps no unseen reality is more important than the reality of the final judgment and the eternal punishment that await those who die in their sins. Nothing could be more real or more true. The solemn day of separation is coming. Hebrews 9 says that it's been appointed to men once to die, and after that, the judgment. We are not autonomous beings. We are accountable to our Creator. 
He has every right to judge us by his good and holy standard. Friends, if we waltz into the judgment still attached to Adam's disobedience rather than Christ's obedience, we are in big trouble. To connect it to the previous parables that we just looked at, if you reject the infinite worth of Christ, if you reject the infinite worth of God's reign, friends, you'll receive the infinite measure of his response to such rebellion. Hell is not capricious. It's not unfair. It's not overly harsh. It's the infinitely right recompense of rejecting an infinitely worthy God. Oh, unbelieving friends, let this reality sober you. You are not a solo actor in your own self-made drama. You are accountable to the God who created you. You will stand before him one day. God will judge you in righteousness. Surely you know enough about your heart and about your history to know that that is not a good thing. Friend, I know how hard it can be to to think lightly about the reality of God's judgment. After all, if you look at the big picture of the world, you don't see a ton of differences sometimes between Christians and non-Christians. I'm not talking about the way way that the, the two live, kind of like morally, but what their experience is in the world. Like, you know, Christian and non-Christian, like you hate the summer heat, right? Here in Phoenix, I hate the summer heat here in Phoenix. Uh, You feel the effect of high gas prices? So do I. Oh, you like football? I like football. It's amazing. You work at this company? I work at this company. What's the big deal? There doesn't seem to be much difference. Friends, the difference is that the kingdom of God functions like a razor's edge. It cuts humanity right down the middle between the righteous and the unrighteous, between those who have a righteousness not their own through faith in Christ and those who remain in their sins until the judgment. It all hinges upon how you respond to Jesus, how you respond to God's reign through Christ. Will you embrace Him or will you reject Him? The separation at the judgment is based wholly on that response. And if that sounds exclusivist or polarizing, that's because it is. This is a hard message, isn't it? It's a hard message. But just like it would be an unloving friend for a doctor to gloss over a serious diagnosis, it would be fundamentally unloving for Christ or for us Christians to act as if you can continue in your sin and everything be just fine. Just because the reality of God's judgment is delayed does not make it untrue. In fact, the resurrection of Jesus, friends, ensures that God's judgment is true. Jesus is the resurrected Lord. And every knee in heaven and earth will bow to him, either in glad worship or forced homage. Here's the jaw-dropping truth. And this should encourage us as followers of Christ. This is what should compel you if you're not a Christian. The jaw-dropping truth of the kingdom is that in his first coming, Jesus did not come to exercise his judgment upon the wicked, but to absorb God's judgment in behalf of the wicked who turned to him in faith. Jesus could have easily justified himself by killing his enemies. Instead, he was killed to justify his enemies. Friends, the delay of God's justice serves the purpose of his mercy. 
The great day of God's judgment has not arrived yet. Still, there is time for you to turn from your sin to Christ. But that day is at hand. It could arrive today if God deems it so. Friends, that's why we, we deem there to be an urgency in the message that we preach. Oh, friends, don't presume upon God's kindness. You simply don't know the expiration date of his patience. But God's patience in delaying judgment will surely expire. The kingdom will come in fullness and God will be glorified on the day of his wrath. Oh, friends, don't sleep on God's mercy while he still extends it to you. Now is the accepted time. Today is the day of salvation. Come to Christ today. Trust in him today. Give your heart to him. There's no specific prayer to pray. You just simply come. You say, Christ, I'm relying on you to get me to God. I can't get there on my own. I want you to reign over me. I don't want to reign over my life anymore. It's miserable. Friends, you'll not find true peace or joy anywhere else. Christ is the source of it all. Brothers and sisters, I think this reality of the divine separation should infuse our lives with a sense of sobriety and hope and urgency in our mission. The reality of hell should be like spiritual smelling salts, right? That wake us out of spiritual stupor. We must not fritter away our time and energy on lesser things in light of this great day. It should affect our attitude about everything. It ought to compel our holiness and motivate our evangelism and drive our perseverance. I was going to read together from 2 Peter 3, picking up kind of where we left off last week, but given the time, I'm going to leave that to you. 2 Peter chapter 3, verses 10 and following, talk about how we should live lives of holiness and righteousness in light of that coming great day. There's nothing more real or true than the, than the delayed reality of God's judgment. Praise God, it will turn out for our salvation, not our condemnation. This is our glorious hope as believers. But friends, it ought to light a fire under us to be busy about the work of helping others prepare to meet the Lord. Number three, number three, your privileged role within the kingdom. After giving these seven parables in Matthew 13, verse 41 records Jesus asking a question to his disciples. Have you understood all these things? They said to him, yes. I don't, I don't think the disciples are being presumptuous here. I don't, I don't think that they were being proud. Their, their spiritual understanding sure was developing. They were immature still in many ways, but the response was their honest assessment of Jesus' teaching and Jesus' question about whether they understood. They said yes. Verse 52, and he said to them, therefore, in light of that, in light of your answer, therefore every scribe who has been trained for the kingdom of heaven is like a master of the house who brings out of his treasure what is new and what is old. Now, friends, admittedly, this is a hard saying to decipher. It kind of makes you look cockeyed at it and make sure you know what Jesus is saying. But it makes sense when you realize that Jesus' statement here is attached to the disciples' answer, right? They confess to understanding the realities of the kingdom, and so then Jesus immediately compares them to a, to a scribe trained for the kingdom. They're discipled scribes, Jesus is saying. What was a scribe in the Old Testament or even in Jesus' day? 
It was someone trained in the scriptures who wrote about what they learned, who could teach the scriptures to others. Think Ezra after Israel's exile. He's like the, the prototypical Old Testament scribe. Jesus here is completely reframing the nature of the scribal role. It's not just for experts in the Old Testament law, but for all his disciples trained in the truths of the kingdom of heaven. Friends, the disciples are not representative of the seminary trained like the, the Navy SEALs of the people of God, some elite class of Christians, the, the clergy, as if, if that's a thing, right? No, every kingdom citizen, Jesus is saying, is an authorized teacher for the kingdom of God. We all have the responsibility and privilege to interpret and teach the scripture in light of God's kingdom dawning in Christ. Think of the Great Commission. Great Commission is given to the disciples and by extension to the entire church. And what does it include? Since Christ has been given this kingly authority over the universe by virtue of his death and resurrection, we are to go into all the world and make disciples, baptizing them in what? In teaching. Baptizing and teaching. All that Christ has commanded. Jesus uses a further analogy to, to describe these disciple scribes in the kingdom. He says, they're like a master of a house who brings out of his treasure what is new and what is, what is old. Now, I'm not sure what new and old things the master of the house would bring out in, in this image. Uh, maybe food or, or, or clothes or household items to bless others. But clearly, this, this master's treasure room included not just the stuff of a bygone era, but new treasures that people had not seen before. The master didn't get rid of the old. He considered them still part of his treasure trove, but clearly the emphasis and the priority is on the new treasures in light of the old. One commentator writes, thus the Old Testament promises of, of Messiah and kingdom, as well as Old Testament law and piety have found their fulfillment in Jesus' person, teaching, and kingdom. And the scribe who has become a disciple of the kingdom now brings out of himself deep understanding of these things and their transformed perspective affecting all of life. Beloved, if we truly treasure the kingdom of God, we'll not only pay what it costs to get it, we will understand our privilege to teach the truths of the kingdom to others. This isn't a role, again, for just elders only, but for every king priest in God's temple. It's a role for every believer. Friends, this is why we want our discipleship here at Redeeming Grace to be both deep and deliberate. We want you to be a discipled scribe in the kingdom of God. We want you to be learners and teachers of God's word. I don't mean that each of you will be a recognized public teacher. Certainly the New Testament regulates certain things regarding that. But friends, in our quest to know Christ, who is indeed the fountain of wisdom and knowledge, God's word ought to flow out of our hearts and into our mouths so that it fills our conversations and our friendships and our commitment to help others follow Christ. So I ask you, is it your goal to be a discipled scribe of the kingdom? A discipled communicator of the realities of the gospel I'm told, I was told this when I moved here. I've been seeing this data multiple times. I, I'm told that Phoenix is one of the most biblically illiterate cities in the country. Lots of churches, high biblical illiteracy. 
There's lots of reasons for that. We don't have time to talk about that. Friends, this is why we want the preaching to be clear at Redeeming Grace. We want it to be accessible to you, but we want it to be theologically robust. We want it to be full of, of, of the knowledge of how Christ fulfills all things, right? How the old is fulfilled in light of, of the new. Why? We want you to be a discipled scribe in the kingdom of God. Friends, this is why we have a discipleship class. Somebody told me who's a, who's a lifer here in Phoenix, you know there's not Sunday school. That's not a thing in Phoenix. Like their education classes are not really a, a thing in, in the valley. I thought to myself, hmm, maybe there's like a one-to-one correspondence between the lack of biblical education in our churches and biblical illiteracy in a city. As you ask, why would we have a 915 class where we're teaching systematic theology? It's so that you can be a discipled scribe in the kingdom of God. Our friends, don't let an hour more sleep rob you of that opportunity, of of growth in that area. Each one of us has the privilege to be a scribe in the kingdom, to bring out of the storeroom of our hearts and minds the treasures of Christ that we've learned to intentionally teach others so that they might do the same. 200 years ago, in 1810, a young man named Adoniram Judson composed an extraordinary letter to the father of the young woman he wanted to marry. He wrote as follows. I have now to ask whether you can consent to part with your daughter early next spring, to see her no more in this world, whether you can consent to her departure for a heathen land and her subjection to the hardships and sufferings of the missionary life, whether you can consent to her exposure to the dangers of the ocean, to the fatal influence of the southern climate of India, to every kind of want and distress, to degradation, insult, persecution, and perhaps a violent death. Can you consent to all this for the sake of him who left his heavenly home and died for her and for you? For the sake of perishing immortal souls? For the sake of Zion? For the glory of God? (laughs) Wow. Friends, what would your response be if you got that letter? Could you ever write that letter? This father granted his consent. And subsequently, Adoniram and Ann Judson took their place among the first group of American missionaries to go overseas. Ann served with her husband Adoniram in Burma from 1813 until her death at the early age of 37. In 1826, she died. Ann Judson, Judson, through years of faithful and sacrificial service, served as a spearhead for the modern missions movement and the spread of the gospel in Asia. Friends, none of that makes sense. None of that makes sense unless the kingdom of God truly is the hidden treasure under the field. Doesn't make sense unless the kingdom of God is the pearl of great price. 
The missionary zeal doesn't make sense. The father's consent does not make sense if there's something of greater value than the kingdom of God. If there is, then by all means, give your life for that. But if God's reign through Christ really does surpass the worth of anything else, then beloved, this type of sacrifice is the greatest investment we could ever make. If you truly understand the inestimable value of the kingdom, you'll be willing to give up everything to obtain it and you'll share its treasures with others. Let's pray. Well, Lord, we believe these things. We believe you. Help our unbelief. Do your work among us, we pray in Christ's name. Amen.